alluded to in the call to worship, we began several weeks ago uh, by being confronted with the righteousness of God. God is righteous because God is righteousness. He is Himself the basis for what we would call moral or ethical perfection or uprightness. And keep that in mind because it's going to come up later. God is righteousness. He doesn't meet a standard and we say, well, since you met the standard, you're righteous. No, He is the standard and everything is to be judged by Him. A thing is right only in as much as it stands in alignment with who God is and God's will. A person is righteous only in as much as they are in all matters conformed to God and His will and His commandments. God is righteous and God is righteousness. Now what God's righteousness does when we look at it in a certain light, it, it shows us just how far we are from Him. It shows us that we are not righteous. And so then we considered the Bible's teaching on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How His life and His death, His obedience at all points, is credited to the believer through faith. As if we had done it. And God treats us then from that point as if we had lived according to the righteousness of Jesus even though we have not. He still treats us that way. He, we are declared righteous. We're reckoned by God to be conformed to Himself in Christ, even though when we look in the mirror, we recognize that we are not righteous, still practically, uh, actually. So then the next step in our thinking was, was what I'm calling gospel obedience. We have God's righteousness that's in Him, and we have Christ's righteousness which is in Him and yet imputed to us through faith. But then we have gospel righteousness, which is my lived out righteousness. We started with an overview of the idea from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. The context of gospel obedience or gospel righteousness is the life of a believer, the life of a Christian. That's the only place that this kind of righteousness can be found is in one who is already a Christian. The pattern of gospel obedience is their entire life, is a life of obedience to God. The essence of gospel obedience is, is simply God's salvation in us working out and coming to fruition in our living. The source of gospel obedience is God's Spirit dwelling in us, working in us both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. And the standard is God's good pleasure. And if I'm living ethically, morally, in a way that is according to God's good pleasure, we would call that righteous living, living a righteous life. A Christian's pattern of life will be obedience to God as the fruit of salvation because God's Spirit works in us. And the result is righteous living. Now from there I tried to sum up that whole idea in this statement. Standing immovably fixed in the ordo salutis between the legal aspects of the gospel, like justification, we're declared righteous, that's legal. Start between that and the eternal aspects of the age to come, heaven, would be the promise 
expectation and requirement of a living, breathing, flesh and blood righteousness with your name on it. We're justified by the grace of God through faith in and through and by the righteousness of Christ alone. Only Christ's righteousness is considered in our justification. Eventually, someday, we will be glorified in the presence of God. Until then, we have lives to live. What does that life look like? Well, the Bible says that there is the promise, expectation, and requirement of a living, breathing, flesh and blood righteousness with with my name on it, with your name on it. Or to to put it very simply, the gospel produces law-keeping. Or the gospel produces righteousness. Righteousness in the Scriptures is not only a thing imputed, that being the righteousness of Christ, but historically Christians have, have believed righteousness is also a thing imparted or worked in the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit. So then we ask the question, how can we be so sure? If I make a statement like if, a, if someone becomes a Christian, if they are born again, they will then begin to live a life of righteousness. How can I be so sure? And the answer is because of the nature of salvation. The salvation that's offered to men in the gospel, the salvation that the Bible calls so great a salvation, is a salvation that's suited to our fall. It's a salvation of the whole man. It's a salvation that answers to the fullness of our need. That's what God promises to give us. A full salvation to redeem the whole man from the whole fall. Now picture with me the prophet Jeremiah sunk in a pit of mud up to his armpits. He needs to be saved. He needs to be rescued or delivered. That's what the word saved means, salvation. He needs to be delivered. Now imagine his friends tie together some uh, cloth pieces to lower down into the pit and it's just barely long enough to brush the top of his hair. Is that going to get him out of that pit? No, that's an insufficient salvation. That would be no salvation. Imagine they made it perfectly long enough except they had tied together strings of dried up uh, straw from the fields. Would that be sufficient to lift him up out of the mud? Would that be a sufficient salvation? No, it wouldn't. What if they tied the claws together, they got him under his armpits, they began to pull, they pulled him up to about his knees, where everything below his knees is still in the mud, and they said, there you go, we've rescued you. Would that be a salvation suited to his need? No. They had to pull him all the way out of the hole, out of the pit. When it comes to the salvation that's promised to us in the Scriptures, it's not a salvation that says, I'm going to declare you righteous and then just leave you right there so that your life just continues to be the, a, a, a cesspool of sin and iniquity. No, God comes and He says, I'll declare you righteous from the start based on the imputation of the righteousness of Christ alone, and then I'm going to put my Spirit in you and cause you to actually get rid of sin and put on righteousness, to live a life that is conformed to God. It's a, a full salvation. Now, in thinking of this salvation suited to our need, we might ask, What is the great horror of the fall? Or what was the great horror of the fall? Some of us imagine that to to be exposed in the nude was the great horror of the fall. There they were, 
Up until a point, they were naked and unashamed, and all of a sudden, they were ashamed. And, and how embarrassing would that be? Well, that wasn't the great horror of the fall. The great horror of the fall wasn't even that man and woman had sinned. The great horror of the fall was that they are now alienated from God. They're cut off from God. And we in them have been separated from God. Why? Because of our sin. Sin is uncleanness. It's a stain upon us which God's righteous character cannot suffer to exist in His presence except that it be met with infinite fury. You say, well, He doesn't seem very furious to people walking the streets. That's because it's heaping up. It's piling up and, and it will be poured out upon them in eternity if they don't repent and believe the gospel. Sin in us cannot be met with anything other than God's infinite fury. That's why Christ's righteousness has to be imputed to us from the start so that we can be reconciled to God and treated in that regard and then we're made righteous. But uncleanness led to separation from God and separation the Bible calls death. Separation from God is death. When we talk about total depravity, another way to think of that is death in all parts of our being. Separation from God, who is life, in all parts. My mind, my heart, my physical flesh is cut off from life and will, even my body will eventually be laid in the ground. Sin in us leads to separation from God which is death in all parts of our being, so much so that in our natural state, it's not merely that we've been pushed away from God uh, contrary to our desires. We, 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 people just want to come to God, but God won't let them. No, no, no. In our natural condition, our desires severed from the life of God because of corruption and sin are not for God at all. We are by nature enmity with God. By nature, we don't want to come to God. No one desires God naturally. And so we, we find ourselves in this revolving cycle. Sin produces uncleanness, which God cannot endure. He must stiff, it, stiff arm. He must push it away. So we're cut off from God. That produces death. Well, what does death then produce in us? More sin. And we're in this revolving door of running further and further from God because of sin. So then we considered the beginning of the work of salvation, regeneration. A, 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 a new heart is given. A new mind, a new nature is given through the work of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, what about my sins? What about my actual sins? As a regenerate man, I can say... And you, could, you can call me tomorrow and ask if you'd like, but tomorrow I could get up after about two hours, I could go ahead and begin to list the sins that have been committed even in that time period. I'm going to have actual sins tomorrow in my life. So, so what about actual sin? If any man says he has no sin, he's a liar. That led us to consider sanctification, the ongoing work of salvation. Yes, the breach between us and God is settled legally in Christ and in Christ alone. But my problem was not first that I was separated from God. My problem is that I am a sinner and that sin caused the separation. And then that separation then leads to more sinfulness in me. 
I need my sins dealt with subjectively. My actual sins in daily life, my, the, the thinking of my mind, the product of my flesh, I need that dealt with on a daily basis from now until the time I die. And sanctification is the work of God in that. Negatively, God works in us to put off our sin. We call that mortification. Positively, God works in us to put on righteousness. That's called vivification. Life in. Death to sin, life put in us. Salvation suited to our condition must deal with our separation from God and the actual uncleanness and enmity in us because of sin. And this is exactly what the gospel promises to do or what God promises to do in the gospel. He promises to take us and not only legally reconcile us to God through Christ, that's, that's good news, but He begins at that point to then make us actually righteous throughout our lives. If we, we might think of it this way, if the legal reconciliation was all that we needed, then why, do we, why, do I, why does my body have to die? Why do I have to be glorified? Can I just go to heaven just like this and say, well, eternally I'm, I'm justified and that's enough? No, the, the thing is, God is making us entirely new so that we can dwell in His presence forever. Now, if there is consistent mortification of sin and consistent putting on of righteousness, then what is the actual fruit going to be in one's life? The answer is a living breathing flesh and blood righteousness. That person, justified by grace through faith, according to the imputed righteousness of Christ alone, regenerated and given a new nature, a new principle of grace and the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, that person will then begin to live actually righteous. What is the standard of righteousness in Scripture? It's God's law. So that person will begin to live according to God's law. And, I, and we're calling that, or I'm calling that, gospel obedience or gospel righteousness. Now that, that concludes the end of the recap. You can all consider yourselves up to speed. <clears throat> what we have to do now is show from Scripture that this is so. I want to prove to you that this is actually the case for more texts than just Philippians Two, even if that were the only one, it would be sufficient. But I want to show, you, show it to you more broadly. First, that there will be obedience to God's commandments produced in the life of every Christian. But then secondly, we have to consider how a Christian is to produce this obedience. How? What makes it gospel obedience? We have to show that as well. Oftentimes, we will very firmly declare... That no one is saved, and by that we mean justified. No one is saved by merely pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and, and bringing themselves to God and initiating this work. It's not something you just come and do, but it's something that God does to us. It's not just a decision that you make, but something God works in you. We declare that very firmly, but then we drift into thinking that that is the way that we're sanctified. That is the way that we're made more and more holy. That was the problem in Galatians. Did you begin by the Spirit and now you're going to be perfected some other way? You, you, were, you, were, you began the, the work of salvation walking this direction, but you're going to bring it to perfection walking that direction? That, that can't happen. 
We often think this way. Now that you've been reconciled to God objectively through faith in Christ and Christ alone, grit your teeth, bite the bullet, hit the pit, hit the hip, tighten the reins, and obey. Just do it. Well, that's not gospel obedience. That's what historically has been called legal obedience. I just got to do it. That's not gospel obedience. Gospel obedience is obedience that flows from a believed gospel. It flows from faith. And so we'll have to unpack what does that mean. What does it mean to live by faith? What does that mean? So, just for today and for the next few weeks, we're going to open up the first part. I want to show or prove that there will be obedience to God's commands in the life of every Christian. I want to open up this phrase, the promise, expectation, and requirement of a living, breathing, flesh and blood righteousness with your name on it. Promise, expectation, requirement. I want you to see that in God's plan of salvation, there is a promise, expectation, and requirement of actual righteousness. A promise being something God gives. The expectation is something that we ought to have of ourselves. And the requirement is a necessary condition that God has fixed based on His own promise. So we're going to begin with the promise. The promise. God has promised that those who have come under the saving power of His Holy Spirit, who've been born again, who've exercised saving faith in Christ, who've been justified freely by His grace, God has promised those people will live righteous lives. Or if we want to put it really short and in a way that really um, ruffles feathers, you can say it this way. God has promised that a Christian will keep the Ten Commandments. God has promised that a Christian will keep the Ten Commandments. Now to prove that, I want to focus on four passages of Scripture. In chronological order, Jeremiah 31, 33, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, Ezekiel 37, 24, and Galatians 5, 16. Now, we could group them into their, their different authors. We could say this promise according to the prophet Jeremiah, this promise according to the prophet Ezekiel, and this promise according to the apostle Paul. And all these passages are going to build on and influence, in, and influence each other. Sadly, I'm only going to get to the first one today. Uh, I wanted to, to cover all of these, but I think that just this first passage... Jeremiah 31 is going to require enough mental labor of us all. I don't want to tax anyone beyond that, especially my own self. So, the prophet Jeremiah, the text that we read, and hopefully you've still got your Bible open there, Jeremiah 31, and we'll be turning to, to one other major passage today. According to God's Word to the prophet Jeremiah, God has promised that a Christian will keep the Ten Commandments. Verse 33 says, And this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, or the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. First, we need to recognize what's happening in this passage. Obviously, we're reading the Word of God that came through the prophet Jeremiah. Children, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, the crying prophet. Do you know why he's known as the, the weeping prophet? 
because he wept a lot. He cried a lot. He was known for his weeping. Do you know why he wept a lot? The reason that he wept a lot was because he prophesied with during a time of increasing wickedness, judgment, and eventually exile of his own people. His sorrow was manifested in his ministry as he watched the nation of Judah plunge deeper into rebellion against God, fall under God's judgment, and eventually be taken into captivity while he preached to them. While he preached, he watched it and he wept. He's the weeping prophet. Jeremiah was one of the last prophets before the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, here's what's interesting. In the near context of what we're reading, Jeremiah is talking about something that's going to happen in the future, after God's judgment comes upon this nation. Notice verses 24 to 28 of Jeremiah 31. Listen to the tenor of this language. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. Then Jeremiah says, At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. He's not weeping. He's happy. God speaks again, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. It shall come to pass that I, as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. You see, these are promises of good, of plenty, of restoration, of rebuilding. And again, Jeremiah is saying these things before the destruction of Jerusalem, which means he cannot possibly be speaking of something that happened in the past or something that was present for him. He's speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of what God will do in the future. This section forms a promise of what God will do in the future. Now, when I was little, there might be times when something got broken, or I'll just use that as an illustration, something's broke. And I might be asked by my father, did you do this? No. Tell the truth. And I would say something like, no, I promise. And the response that I got invariably was, a promise is something you're going to do. You don't promise that you didn't do something. A promise is something you're going to do. If I told a story, you're never going to believe what happened. Oh, come on now. No, I promise. Invariably, a promise is something you're going to do. That's what we have here. God is telling us something that He's going to do. Something in the future. It's a promise. Now moving a little bit closer to the text, verse 33 specifically, we see that in verses 31 and 32, with regard to what God is promising to do in the future, there's what I'm calling a covenantal comparison. Look at verse Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, but I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Do you see the comparison? I will make a new covenant, not like the other one. 
a new covenant, not like the covenant I made with their fathers. He's comparing a new covenant with what we might call an old one, an old covenant. And he describes the old one as the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Now what covenant comes along with God bringing His people out of the land of Egypt? It's what we typically call the Mosaic Covenant. It was, this covenant was entered into at Mount Sinai where God gave His law to the nation of Israel. Now this is important. In that scene, again we're, we're sort of um, reading behind the picture here, the image. But if we went back to Mount Sinai, remember that God came down upon the mountain and He wrote His law on tablets of stone with His own finger. That law we know as the Ten Commandments. So what's being promised in this passage is that after the destruction of Jerusalem, sometime in the future, God's going to make a new covenant with His people that is not like that old one. It's a comparison. A new one, not like the old one. Not like the one where I wrote my, my law on tablets of stone with my finger. Not that one. I'm going to make a new one. Now notice the comparison. For, this is verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Do you see the difference? I'm going to make a new covenant, not like the old one, not like the one where I wrote it on tablets of stone, I'm going to make a new one where I completely get rid of the whole idea of the law and we never have to worry about that again. No, that's not what he says. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to put my law within them. The difference, the distinction, the contrast in this passage is preeminently found in the writing of God's law. Where is the law written? In the Old Covenant, it's implied. It was written on tablets of stone. But here in this New Covenant, it's going to be written on hearts. Notice the law doesn't change in these covenants. Only where it is written changes. That's the contrast. So we see that God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is promising that in the future, He's going to institute a new covenant that differs from the Old Covenant, at least in this, that His law is not going to be a law written on tablets of stone. It's going to be a law written on hearts, the heart of each member of the new covenant. Now, if we're going to claim this promise and say, we, we would like that promise, please, we think that's ours, then we have to prove that this has some application to us. The difficulty in making the application is found in the subjects to whom this covenant is promised. Notice in verse 31, God said, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 33, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. It says house of Israel, house of Judah, house of Israel. It sounds or it seems to be a pretty ethnically exclusive covenant. And many take it to be that way. A consistent dispensationalist would say the new covenant's made with Jewish people, not us. Because that's what the text says. That's, what it, that's how it reads, literally. Now, as with many statements like this and the errors that stem from reading them in isolation, the difficulty is cleared up by reading what the Holy Spirit says 
in the New Testament or how the Holy Spirit uses these passages in the New Testament. Now, we won't read the whole thing, but this entire uh, promise is quoted in Hebrews chapter 8. This whole promise in, in chapter 8, verses 8 to 12. Then in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, speaking of Christ, it says, Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant. So Jesus Christ is the mediator of this new covenant that God promised to make. And anyone who is in covenant with Christ is in this covenant. This is the covenant that He mediates. At the institution of the Lord's Supper, Christ said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, the outpoured blood of Jesus was the seal of this new covenant. The Lord's Supper is the remembrance of the spilled blood of Jesus for our sins and the sealing of the new covenant. And every week we read these words, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. 25, in the same way also, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, there may have been some Jews in the church in Corinth, but the church in Corinth was not a Jewish church. It was primarily a Gentile church. And here Paul is instituting, you're going to take this sign of the new covenant in Christ's blood upon yourselves. And as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of the Christ of the covenant. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament given to the entire church of Jesus Christ, made up of Jews and Gentiles of all nations. Just as Christ's mediatorial sacrifice and atoning death are for men of every nation, so also this new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31 is a covenant for people of all nations. This covenant. Now there's one more text that I want to use to prove this point. And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter 3. Again, my point here is simply the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 is applicable to Gentiles, us. If we were all Jews here and we could trace our lineage back to uh, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, we'd have no problem. But here we come into a room and I don't know that any of us could trace that lineage. So we're, we're, we're trying to claim a promise that on, on, on the surface at face value doesn't look like it's ours at all. I wanna, I'm proving to you that it is. It's sealed in Christ's blood. He's the mediator. The Lord's Supper is given as the sign of the new covenant. The sign of the new covenant is given and commanded to Gentile churches. But listen to this passage as, as Paul defends his ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. He says, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Notice Paul says, 
that God had made them, He and His apostolic preachers, His band, God had made them sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. Now, there, there are texts like Galatians 2.8 and others that tell us very clearly Paul was the, the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter had his ministry to the Jews. Paul had his ministry to the Gentiles. Now, how can Paul be a minister of the new covenant and the apostle to the Gentiles if the new covenant was literally to be applied only to ethnic Israelites? It can't be. He's either a minister of the new covenant or he's a minister of the Gentiles. What we're saying is, no, it goes together because the new covenant is a covenant made for believers from every nation. House of Israel or house of Judah in Jeremiah 31 is a historical epithet used in prophetic literature to speak of God's people of all nations. The new covenant is a covenant for believers of every nation. So then we can conclude as Gentiles that one distinct promise of the new covenant, which encompasses men from every nation, especially Gentile believers like us, is that God's law will be written on the heart of every individual in that covenant. Does that make sense? I think I've made that. That's the point. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and will write it on their hearts. Now, for the purposes of our subject, we need to then ask, what does that mean? What does it mean to have God's law written on the heart? Surely, Paul doesn't mean that if you're performing open heart surgery on a regenerate Christian, you cut them open and you look and you'd say, wow, there are, there are Hebrew letters here etched upon... We all agree that's not what he's saying, right? We know that's not what he's saying. So what does it mean to have the law written on the heart? Or to God says, I'll put my law within them. What does that mean? And this is where the text in 2 Corinthians is actually very helpful. Because in the text that we read in 2 Corinthians 3, just like in Jeremiah 31, we have a covenantal comparison. Paul is comparing the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. And specifically with his with regard to his ministry as a minister of the new covenant, not of the old. Looking, look there at 2 Corinthians 3. He says, You show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us. And, and just try to picture what he's saying. He's painting a word picture here. You are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The saints in Corinth were like a letter of verification of Paul's ministry. They were people who were challenging his ministry and his apostleship. And he says, I don't have to defend my ministry at all. Are you a Christian? Okay, who preached that gospel to you when you were converted? There you go. That's the evidence. I came, I preached the gospel, the Spirit came along with that gospel, and you yourselves are the verification that I had administered the new covenant. They had been saved through His ministry, and that was evidence 
that he was a true minister. In other words, the salvation of the Corinthians is here described as a letter written by Christ. Now think of the picture. He says, rather than ink, when you write a letter, what's left on the page? Ink. He says, not with ink, rather than ink, it's written with the Spirit of the living God. Rather than tablets of stone, he wrote it on human hearts. And the ESV has a footnote there that says, Greek fleshly hearts or hearts of flesh. That's what the word literally means. The law, not the law, the Spirit has been left on hearts of flesh. That's what he says. Now, if we're just reading this, we would ask, where in the world did this notion come from of writing on tablets of stone? He's talking about his ministry. He's, he's sort of validating his ministry to them. And out of nowhere, it's tablets of stone. Where did that come from? Well, it's clearly a reference to the stone tablets of Mount Sinai because he's leading into a comparison of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. What makes this one better? There's an ongoing comparison between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. And the application of each covenant, respectively, is described as something written, where it was written, with what it was written, and the conclusion of it, namely life or death there in verse 6. It's just like in Jeremiah 31. There was a covenantal comparison. And what was the comparison? Something has been written in both covenants. It's just written in different places. On stone in the old, on hearts of flesh in the new. So we would ask here in 2 Corinthians 3... Again, we're still asking, what does it mean to have the law written on our hearts? Okay, in, in 2 Corinthians 3, what was written? The implication is that under the Old Covenant, the law was written on tablets of stone. When Moses got done, what was left on those tablets? Etchings of God's law on stone. That's what was left there. Okay, in the New Covenant, in this text... What is written? The answer is the Holy Spirit. We'll just stay vague for now. The Spirit. Not with ink. If I write something, ink stays on the page. He says, not like that. That's not what's left. Ink is not what's left. The Holy Spirit is what's left. Not with ink, but with the Spirit. Okay? What was written? Or, or rather, on what was it written? I'm trying not to end a sentence with a preposition. In my natural vernacular, I would have no problem ending the sentence with a preposition. What was it written on? Well, under the old covenant, tablets of stone. And the new covenant, what is it written on? Hearts of flesh. What was it written with? What was the writing utensil? Under the old covenant, we go back to other passages, the finger of God wrote the law on tablets of stone. But here, it says you're a letter written by Christ. Christ is the author. Now, I think we could justify from elsewhere that it specifically we would say the Spirit of Christ is the author. Christ was ascended into the heavens at the time the Corinthians heard the gospel. And to what end? Again, the old covenant, death. New covenant, life. It's a covenantal comparison. Just like in Jeremiah 31. This is, in, in my thinking, this is Paul's... Um, this is Paul's... Uh, use of or, or example of, of Jeremiah 31 other than in Hebrews where he quotes Jeremiah 31. This is, this is Paul's Jeremiah 31. 
Except Paul's not speaking of a promise that will come someday in the future. Paul's talking about something that happened to the believers in Corinth when they were converted, when they were saved. He's validating his ministry by true salvations. Now here's what we learn. Here's what I want you to see. There is a, I don't, I don't know the, the word to use, a parable, a uh, symbolism, uh, an allegory to be seen in the etching of the law of God on tablets of stone at Mount Sinai. We, we ask, why did God write on stone? Well, on one side we typically say, well, just to show that it stands forever. Okay, I agree. I think there's more to it than that. I think there's, there's a picture in the reason that God wrote on stone at Mount Sinai regarding the nature of fallen man and the nature of the Old Covenant. At creation, man had the law of God written on his heart. In the fall, because of separation from God, man's heart becomes dead, stone. At Sinai, the law is written on tablets of stone. Why? To testify to the hardness of man's heart his inability to keep the law, and the inability of the Old Covenant to change that. The Old Covenant was never meant to change man's heart. The law written outside of man on stone was as effective in him as if it had been written in him on a heart of stone. A heart of stone is completely unresponsive to any, uh, anything except force. A stone heart doesn't respond. It's lifeless. But in the salvation offered in the new covenant, the same law is written on a new heart, a living heart, a heart of flesh. The same law, just written in a different place. Now think about the law of God. We're still asking the question, what does it mean to have the law of God written on your heart? Think about the law of God. It is a transcript of what? God's righteousness. It just, it's just describing God's righteousness to us. Outside of it, it only shows us how far we are from God. But inside of us, written by and with the Holy Spirit, it enlivens us to live according to that standard of righteousness. Now God's righteousness, again, is not some standard God meets. God's righteousness is who He is. God is righteousness. And thus the Holy Spirit of God is God's righteousness. Not God's righteousness outside of us. The Spirit of God is God's righteousness in us. To have the ink of the Spirit Himself left upon the heart, which is the promise of the new covenant, is to have God's own moral standard effectually graved upon the throne of your being. It's to have God's righteous Spirit poured into the spring of your life. Out of the heart come all the issues of life. Out of the, the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Everything that you are comes from your heart. Here we have the Spirit written or given, poured into. So what does it mean to have the law of God written on the heart? It means that the Holy Spirit, not ink, the Holy Spirit is given as the governing agent and God's law as the governing moral principle of the soul. In that way, we might think of God's law like the law of gravity. It, it governs. You throw a, a, a ball up, the law of gravity governs what happens to that ball. In this sense, the law of God is given as a governing law inside of us, in our hearts. 
It governs, it, it, it determines which way we go as life comes out of, our, out of the soul. The Spirit, who is God, can govern and guide in no way other than according to His own divine uprightness, of which the Ten Commandments are a transcript. That's what He does. To, to use a different illustration, when the spring of life has been spiked with the spirit of righteousness, then the life that comes out of that heart will be ordered according to righteousness, God's law. Sam Waldron says, It is to have God's law installed in us as the ruling power of our convictions, affections, words, and actions. And I would add to that, this, this helps us to think. It's not installed as a bare letter. It's installed as the Spirit of God Himself. It's a, a life, a living essence, giving. It gives life, and we'll see this in the weeks to come. If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. What's he saying? That old law could not give life. Who gives life except God? To have the law of God written is synonymous with having the Spirit given. Life-giving. And that, be that becomes the governing principle of our life, of, of all of our living. In other words, God has promised that a Christian will keep the Ten Commandments. Now, as we've said before, we have to qualify we feel the need to qualify with nowhere does it say absolutely perfectly without, without defect or, or detour. That's not what it says. We know that's not going to be the case. But God has promised that a Christian will keep the Ten Commandments. Now, several conclusions that we draw from this. <clears throat> Number one, notice the prominence of the law of God in the Old Covenant. Notice the prominence of the law of God in the Old Covenant. We very often use, and the Bible does this, just uses the phrase, the law, as description of the entire Old Covenant system. Mm -hmm. Under the law. In Jeremiah, and in 2 Corinthians, and we'll see elsewhere, the Old Covenant is described specifically in terms of God giving a law. That's the Old Covenant. Now, most evangelicals are going to say, yeah, yeah, the Old Covenant, the law, yeah. We, we know that, okay? Second conclusion, notice the prominence of the law of God in the New Covenant. Same thing. In Jeremiah 31, the very first staple of the New Covenant is explained in the writing of God's law. And we're going to see this repeated. I'm going to make a New Covenant. Oh boy, tell us what it is. We can't wait. I'm going to write the law in you. Same law, same God, but instead of being outside of you for you to look at, it's going to be inside of you. It's going to give you life. So just notice that. We'll see it in the other passages. Number three, notice God's aim in redemptive history. Namely, to have a people conform to Himself. This is God's goal. It's not just to rescue us. It's to make us after His image. To conform us to Himself. In noting the prominence of the law of God in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant, you can see that God's plan 
has been a full restorative salvation of a people completely conformed to His image morally. That was His goal. Here's my law. Be holy as I am holy. Live, live, live like me. Under the new covenant, I'm going to put it in you. And what does He say in the New Testament? In Peter, be holy for I am holy. For the Lord your God is holy. If He's your God, then you'll be holy. God's plan was never to have a people merely legally reconciled. That is the glory of the gospel at the present state that we've been reconciled through the death of His Son objectively, not according to anything we've done. But that, God doesn't stop there. He continues. When God promises in Jeremiah 31, 33, I will be their God and they shall be my people, He's not only addressing the concepts of protection and provision that we, we find when we have Him as our God, but He's describing the transformative power of His Spirit to make us into a people who bear His moral and ethical image. They'll be my people. How do you know they're His people? Because they look like Him. They, they act like Him. Now we have to be careful here when we as Christians pretend like God's law and living righteous lives and obeying moral standards is somehow antithetical. I'm choosing my words purposefully here. Antithetical to the biblical gospel, we're sorely mistaken. When we as Christians pretend like God's law and living righteous lives and obeying moral standards is somehow antithetical to the biblical gospel, we're mistaken. At the same time, to say that the law and the gospel are not opposed is not the same as saying they're basically the same thing. While the law and the gospel are not opposed, they are still distinct. The law is not the gospel. The gospel is not the law. The gospel contains in it the promise of what God will do with His law. And more specifically, His Spirit. That's the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. Our living according to the law is not the gospel. That we can live according to the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, that is a part of the promise of God in the gospel. And none of this is even remotely close to theonomy. There are people who say, theonomy means God's law. If you approve of God's law, you're a theonomist. When they say that, I think I've said this before, if you hear that, the person is either blatantly lying or they're ignorant of, what they're, of, what, that of which they speak. They don't know what they're talking about. And you'll hear people say this is becoming more prominent as this idea begins to be attempted to be, as men attempt to blur the idea of theonomy and try to make it sound Christian or, or evangelical. Uh, they'll begin to describe theonomy as a, uh, a, a, a it's just a, a, a category of Christian ethics. What I'm describing is Christian ethics. Theonomy is a Christian political ideology. I say Christian loosely. Uh, it, it is political. People say, well, it's just not political. No, it, it is political. By definition, historically, it is political. When we say a Christian is a, to live according to God's law, that's not theonomy. 
That's just Christian Ethics 101. We ought to follow the commandments of God. Now, the question, what does God require of our political rulers and what should they be enforcing in our, in our land, that's a different question. And how should they be enforcing it? Um, that's a different question. So, God's aim in redemptive history has been to have a people conform to Himself. Always. Fourthly, here's a point of application. Examine your heart with respect to the promise of the new covenant. If God has promised that members of the new covenant will have His law written on their hearts, and this new covenant encompasses every Christian, then we can examine ourselves with regard to or in light of our relationship to God's law. Not by asking, do I obey enough to make myself right with God? The answer is always no. That's not what we're asking. The question is, does my life give evidence that God's law has been written on my heart? God said He promised, God promised He would do it. Does my life give evidence to that? Listen to the law. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates." For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. When you hear the law of God read, and, and of course we know that that law can be and is expanded and applied extensively throughout the Scriptures, but just on a cursory reading, are there any areas where you realize your heart pushing against it? I don't like that one. Or do you delight in God's law? And do you delight in it because it is God's law? It's easy to say, well, I, I, I delight in that law that says you shall not steal because I don't want anybody stealing from me. But I also don't mind stealing myself when it benefits me. I delight in that commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor because I don't want people bear, uh, bearing false witness against me. But I don't mind saying a thing or two here or there when it benefits me or 
uh, takes someone who is my uh, apparent enemy and lowers them in the eyes of other people. I can say some things to, to bring them down or slander them. Do you, do you delight in God's law when it applies to you? Because it is God's law. When presented with an ethical crossroads in your life, what do I do here? What, what's the right decision? Do you ask, what does the law of God say? Does your life as a general pattern conform to this law? Now, if you say, I do delight in that. I delight in that law because it is God's law. I see that it's good, that it's holy, that it's blessed, that that is, that is the good way. And I aspire to walk in that way. If you say that, you have an experiential front row seat to a fulfillment of a promise of God. God promised He would write His law in your heart. You say, His law is written in my heart. Praise the Lord. His promises are true. His word never falls to the ground. He does exactly what He says He's going to do. Did God say, I'll make a new covenant. I'll put my law within them and write it on their hearts and they'll never sin again. No, He didn't say that. He didn't say that. That's why we don't look in ourselves and say, is there any sin? Well, I guess I'm not a Christian. No. Do I delight in the law of God? Now, as we examine ourselves in this way, number five, we have to guard against actual legalism. For some people, everything that I've said up until this point is legalism. God promises you'll keep the Ten Commandments. That's legalism. I'm talking about actual legalism. We do have to guard against it. Do you think that you're delighting in and obeying this law is earning your place in God's family? It's not. By works of the law will no man be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You're not made, you're not made right or brought into God's family because you obey Him. That's... Rooted in the work of Christ alone. Do you imagine that God's love for you goes up when you obey and then it goes down when you disobey and He turns His back and He says, I just can't, I just can't put up with you right now. It, it doesn't because His love for us is based on what Christ has done, not what we do. Do you ever think to yourself, God, God would never send me to hell. I mean, I, I really do a pretty good job at keeping His commandments. That's drifting into legalism. It's drifting into legalism. We must always use the law lawfully, which means we never use it to justify ourselves before God. We can use it as a mirror to tell us how to act and how to live and to examine ourselves. Has this been written in my heart? Do I delight in it? If there's one of God's commandments that I don't delight in, why not? We have to guard against legalism. And, and number six, one of the best ways to guard against legalism and a legal spirit is to look at the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ, these words are placed on His lips from Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do Your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. The New Testament tells us that's, those are the words of Christ. Now, you might object and say, well, didn't we not just determine that a Christian will say the same thing? Yes. In reading the psalm as it was written, would we not say David, as, a, as, as one under the old covenant, actually said, your law is within my heart? Yes. But no Christian, not even David, can say that this has been their consistent claim from birth. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. Or even from eternity. You can't say that this is true of you Always. 
You can't say that there have never been any opposing loyalties in your heart whatsoever. You can't say that. You can say, the law has been written on my heart and I delight to do it. And at the same time, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. That's, that's the, the language of the Christian. That's the language of David. That's the language of Paul. We say along with David, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. There was a time when the law of God by God's Spirit, was written on your heart if you're a Christian. And there was a time when that was not so. You did not come out of the womb that way. And there are times even now, even though the law of God is written in your heart, and you say, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, your flesh pushes against it. Maybe, maybe you don't even realize you're pushing against it. You just notice, I've just drifted into... Not keeping God's law. The, the Lord's Day Sabbath is a great reminder to every one of us how easy it is to say, I love the Sabbath, and yet I just caught myself not delighting in the things of the Lord, but drifting off into other things. But when we look at Jesus Christ, we see a man who could say these words from the very first lisps as a child. All the way up until the point when he yielded up his spirit in death, he could say, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. Even upon the cross, he knew what his Father required of him, and it made him glad to obey. I believe that he was glad to say, Into your hands I commit my spirit. He'd done the work. It's finished. Because he delighted to do the will of his Father. He delighted to obey his Father. He delighted to die for sinners because that's why he came. That was what was commanded of him by his Father, his God. And so any shadows of a legal spirit in us will be driven away as we expose ourselves to the light of Christ's perfect obedience. The only obedience that will ever be accepted in God's court is Christ's obedience. The only obedience upon which we stand in God's presence is Christ's obedience. Now there are some, that, and our tendency to self-righteousness makes us think that that's not the best place to stand. For, for some reason we think in our flesh that it, it would probably be better if I could stand in my own righteousness. Right? I, I, I like that. I think, I think what God wants me to do is come and stand on my own righteousness. How could our righteousness ever be better than the perfect righteousness of Christ? Why would you want to stand on quicksand when you can stand on a rock, an immovable, eternal, Im immutable, perfect righteousness that can never change for all of eternity? Why would Christ have to bring in an everlasting righteousness if the only thing that it does is gets us justified and then we, we set it to the side and go on it our own way? That doesn't make any sense. He brought in an everlasting righteousness because I need an everlasting righteousness to stand upon into eternity. We don't stand on our own righteousness before God. We stand upon Christ. Look at His righteousness. To stand upon Christ is to stand on solid ground. God has promised that His people, that a Christian, will keep the Ten Commandments. 
He never promised it would be without error, without sin. He never promised that, that when we get to a certain point that we'll begin to stand on our own righteousness. He simply said, I'll put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts. This is how they'll live. Because of our corruption and our flesh, we have to war our whole lives. The reason that my body has to be put in the dirt is because it's not glorified yet. I still have that corruption in my flesh. That's the same is true for all of us. Our body's got to go in the ground. But we have been, if you're a Christian, you've been given a new spirit, a new heart. And God never gave us this standard to stand upon, but we stand upon Christ alone. Let's pray.